went up upon the mount, sat down, and his disciples followed him, and he preached. And last week we took the first look at that sermon, which is often called the Beatitudes. And everybody talks about how beautiful it is and simplistic. But I think it's more than that. It's a time for us, if you will, to take a look at an inventory of our lives and see if the things that Jesus talked about being blessed are in our lives. And to make sure that we are accurate in that. So, for instance, as we looked at that, we could say, well, I try to be a peacemaker. Jesus' sermon wasn't, for those who try to be a peacemaker, you'll be blessed. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. So in the beginning of Jesus' sermon, he preaches very powerfully, not only by what he says and how he says, but the fact of who it is that is saying it. And so he's going to follow up this, continuing on with his sermon, in some areas that I think all too often we read them and we'll even quote them and we might even have them in some songs. But we don't take a deep look at what the message is. After all, it's Jesus, so we don't do to Jesus like we do with the typical pastor. You know what we do with the typical pastor. He does his sermon, then we go out to lunch and have roast pastor. Jesus was roasted by the Pharisees, but generally the disciples were in awe of what he had to say. And so continuing part two of many parts, because I'm not Jesus. He says this in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. Now notice, again, he's speaking to his disciples. But notice he doesn't say, you will become the salt of the earth. Or if you try hard enough or learn enough, you'll be the salt of the earth. Right off the bat, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. I've read a few commentaries, and the commentaries will usually give you two reasons that Jesus uses salt and disciples. I have four. The first two most people have heard of, so nothing new. The second two, I'm not saying are original, but they're original to me. What do I mean by original to me? I haven't heard anybody else preach this. I haven't heard anybody else in a commentary talk about it. But I believe Jesus is talking not about one or two aspects of salt, but four aspects of salt that he says that you, as his disciple, are the salt of the earth. The first, which most people commonly accept and understand, that salt is a preservative. In that first century culture, they didn't have refrigerators. Not only did they not have refrigerators, they didn't have ice boxes. Now, if you're as old as me, you kind of have an idea of what an ice box is. I have an idea of what an ice box is, not because my family ever had one, 
but people would call refrigerators an icebox for many years. An icebox was a box that you put ice in and it, and it was so that it would keep things cool. And you would have to constantly replace the ice and usually you would get blocks of ice so that it would keep the, the contents cool so that it would preserve it. Now, I also had the fortune of going to Thomas Jefferson's home. He didn't have an icebox because it wasn't invented then. But he had something else. They dug basically this pit in the ground and then built bricks around. And when winter would come, they would take the snow and ice and place it in there. And then they would at least have some refrigeration, if you will, for a period of time until the snow and the ice melted. Jerusalem wasn't at the altitude where they had snow and ice. So the only thing they could use to keep items from perishing would be salt. It would be a preservative. And so they would salt the meat or whatever, and that would allow it to last longer. Jesus is saying, we are the salt of the earth. In essence, we are the preservatives of this world, of this culture. Take us out, and you've taken out the preservative. The second thing, well, let me go back to the first thing. How preserving are you? Jesus says you. He doesn't say the church. He says you are the salt. So how are you preserving? The second aspect of salt, I know quite well. For lack of a better word, it's a condiment. It makes food taste good especially on steak. I, I put more salt on the steak than I ought to because I think the steak tastes much better with salt than it does without. And if you will see in most things, especially in America, we don't have to worry about salt intake in our diet usually because we love salt because it makes food taste good. I usually will often, like I said, I will salt uh, my steak, I will salt my french fries even before I tasted my french fries because I know there ought to be more salt. I like the taste. Jesus is saying, you and me as salt should improve the flavor of our world. That we should be offering hope to this world that makes life more interesting and appealing because of who we are. The third reason I believe, and this is my thought, salt is necessary for life. Especially in a place where the sun is hot and you sweat a lot. If you've ever played sports or you've been out in a very hot environment, you'll sweat. And sometimes that sweat will get in your eyes and sting. Why does it sting? Because you're losing salt. And if you taste the sweat, you'll taste salty because you're losing salt. And Jesus says, we need to make this world more healthy by keeping the salt in the diet, if you will, to maintain it. And so when we see our culture, instead of complaining that it's sick, we should say, that means I need to be more active. 
Because I'm that salt that makes the body healthy. The fourth reason, which I haven't heard anybody talk about, does not mean that I'm the only one to ever come up with this, and you may hear a sermon tomorrow or next week where the person says it. Praise God, then there'll be a little more justification that I'm right. But I didn't hear it. And that's this. Salt makes you thirsty. The reason why it's original to me, because I remember as a boy being back in Virginia, seeing these salt uh, pillows, if you will, these salt blocks for cows to lick them so that they would drink, so that they would produce more milk. Salt makes you thirsty. And if you want to go on Google, you'll even see why salt makes you thirsty. Because taking salt has the water content in your cells go out, and then your cells want more water, so they want you to drink. Salt makes you thirsty. And Jesus is saying, we are the salt of the world. We ought to make the world thirsty, not for water, but for the living water. That Jesus is the living water and you and me should be about making the world thirsty for him. Not when you become a pastor, not when you become a preacher, not when you've graduated from seminary, not when you know all the Bible stories that you ought to know. Jesus starts off and tells the disciples, you are the salt. Make the world thirsty for him. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He kind of interferes. Because his but, if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are either doing what Jesus told you to do, to be salt, or if you've lost your flavor, Jesus says you're no good. The only value you have is to make highway material out of you. In the Northeast, we use salt to cause the snow to melt so you can drive on it. That's the only value that that type of salt has. I thought Jesus loved everybody. He does. He loves you in spite of your taste. He didn't say you're going to hell. He said you just become useless. Shouldn't we want to be useful for the Savior? Be salt. Keep that taste. Then he goes to another analogy. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But the lampstand, but on a lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus tells us in John that he is the light of the world. And he has told us that we are to be light in this world. Again, has, light has a number of functions. Light has the ability to illuminate the room that we're in so that we can see well. We know who's here and who's not here. We know where the pew is and whatever so that we don't stub our foot. All too often, if we get up in the middle of the night to go somewhere and somebody has put moved an object, we hit our foot. 
And it hurts because we didn't turn the light on. And all too often in our lives, we don't turn the light of Jesus on. We just wander off in darkness. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and you are the light of the world. That a light of the world cannot be hidden. We as lights are not the lights like the sun, like Jesus. We are lights like the moon. We reflect his light. The moon is a great example of that reflective light because every month it goes through phases. There's the new moon, which I always find is an interesting aspect because it's dark. Then there's the quarter moon and the half moon and the full moon, and then it goes back and whatever. But you know, the reason that the moon goes from complete darkness to full moon is because the earth gets in the way. And all too often, the reason we are not the light of the world and reflecting Jesus' light is because the world has got in our way. We've decided that its priorities and its concerns are more important than reflecting Him. I've used this example a number of times and I'll continue to do, use it even though I went there this, this year. As a kid, we would drive on Route 66 and up way off in the distance was a town, city called Albuquerque. You could see it from a long way because the sun would shine on the lights of the, uh, shine on the buildings of the town and you could see it reflecting and you could drive and see that town, and it was up on a hill, just exactly as Jesus was talking about. But when you got there, it was disappointing. Because I swear, it seemed like it was a, just a one-street town. I thought it was a Hollywood set. You know, they had fake buildings this way, and fake buildings this way, and one red light, and you were kind of, you saw it forever, but it was like nothing when you get, now this year when I went, it's a big city. I mean, it's, it's massive. We even spent the night there. Uh, it's grown up a lot. But even a little city from a long way off can be seen. And Jesus is saying, your light should so shine that people can see it from a long way off. Light also has an aspect to avoid danger. I didn't pick the bulletin cover with no purpose in mind. The bulletin has a lighthouse. The point of a lighthouse is to shine its light so that you don't crash upon the rocks, so that you don't sink the ship and lose the people in the cargo. And we, as the light of the world, should be warning people to not crash on the rocks of, our, of this world, but seek safe harbor in Jesus. We are. Not we're going to be not someday if we're good enough. We are, as his disciples, the light of the world. And he says, no one, when you light a lamp, you don't stick it under a bushel. And we even have a children's song. I'm going to let it shine and put it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. But we tend to, in our Christian experience, hide that. I don't want to be a Jesus freak. I don't want people to be put off by my faith. Or I don't know how to witness, and so I'm, they might go to hell because I don't 
Tell them the right things. Well, guess what? If they're on the wrong road, they're on the wrong road. Then he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they say you're an outstanding person. You're awesome. You're so great. He doesn't say that at all. He says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We do these things. We shine like, not to say, look at me. I'm a great Pharisee. I follow all the rules. No, we say the light points to God. The light points to God. My light is simply a reflection of the glory of God. And as his disciple, that is who we are. Not who we're going to become. Not It's who we're supposed to be. Verse 17. Do not think that I came in to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You see, Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching in such a way that seems strange to the people there because they've been told by the Pharisees and the scribes what the law means, and they made up rules and regulations. And so it sounds like when, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, oh, he's breaking the law. Jesus says, I didn't come to break it. I've come to establish it. I've come to fulfill it. So don't accuse me of breaking the law. I've come to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The King James will say jot or tittle, not the cross on a T or a dot over the I. None of it will pass away. Well, since the earth is still in existence and hasn't passed away, the law and the prophets are still there. Now we get all concerned because we're Gentiles and we go, well, does that mean I'm supposed to follow the Ten Commandments and all the 620 whatever laws there are? The Scriptures, as Paul told us, were written to be our teacher. That we might understand who God is, our need for Him, and His mercy. And that's where people make mistakes saying, oh, the Old Testament is old. I'm going to read the New Testament the Old Testament still is an excellent teacher of who God is and His love and His mercy towards us. And since not everything that is contained in the Old Testament has come to pass, for instance, in Daniel, it's still to be finished. Then he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had what they called lesser and greater commands. The greater commands would be things like, don't kill. The lesser commands would be things like, wash after you touch the dead person. There were great commands and lesser commands in there. And Jesus is saying, if God tells you something, I don't care whether you labor to great or small, you do it. And the best way to do the law is as Jesus said, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, you will complete the commandments. So the law is still in effect. And then he really will say something that will, if we were there, would take us aback and all the common people. He says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were those who had all the laws and Bible verses on their clothes and on their foreheads and made sure that everybody else kept the law according to the way they thought it ought to be kept. And everybody thought, well, if anybody's going to go to heaven, it obviously has got to be the Pharisees and the scribes because they follow the law. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, which means not even the Pharisees are going into the kingdom of heaven. Because he said, unless your righteousness exceeds, which means they're not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is probably one aspect of the gospel that we have to preach over and over and over and over again. You do not enter the kingdom of God by the merit of your righteousness. It's not a sum of my good things and my bad things. And if I do more good things than bad things, somehow God will let me in. Because Jesus says, no one is good but God. And since only good people go to heaven, and only God is good, then guess what? It's limited to who gets there. But that's not the gospel. But he has to teach us over and over and over. We don't get there by merit. Paul in Romans tells us that the Jews who were given the law didn't follow the law and are guilty. And then he tells us the Gentiles, you and me, we're not judged on the law because it wasn't given to us. Guess what we're judged on? Our conscience. Now, if you are honest with yourself, you know at least once, at least once, you've violated your conscience. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Lying is wrong. I don't, I don't think lying is right. An elephant ain't no homework. My sister did it. We violate our conscience more often than I think we admit. And the problem is, the more we violate our conscience, the easier it is to violate our conscience until the point we have no conscience. And God will judge you, not based on the law if you're not a Jew. He'll judge you on your conscience and your conscience will say, condemned. Yeah. 
and who can enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans tells us what I've just said. It says, Paul quoting an Old Testament scripture. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So guess what? If you and I think we're entering the kingdom of heaven because of our goodness, the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament says no. Jesus later in his sermon is going to take the law and expand it. It's going to make it even harder for us to claim to be righteous. But here's the good news. Again in Romans it says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets tells us how righteous God is. And the standard is not the scribes and the Pharisees. The standard is God. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. We enter and are qualified to be participants of the kingdom of heaven, not because of our righteousness, but because of his. And having faith in him and his righteousness has then made it apply to me, imputed to me. So Jesus, early on in this sermon, it's right down to the nitty-gritty. If you want to go to heaven, stop thinking about goodness. And think about his grace. When you're thinking about being a disciple, stop thinking about you and think about your impact in the world. All too often, one of the reasons that I don't like to listen to many TV preachers, because they'll say, you know, if you want to do something, God will let you do it. Well, what happened to let your will be done? Everybody wants to talk about their will and their dreams and their accomplishments. In this second phase of Jesus' sermon, he told us what our goal ought to be. Be salt and be light. And stop thinking about your righteousness and cling to him. Sounds to me like a pretty good goal. And as Jesus will later say, and all these things shall be added to you. If it is God's will that you become the next famous whatever, then you'll become the next greatest famous whatever. 
because it's the will of God. And we should be pursuing the will of God. All too often people say, I'm waiting for a new word from God. I'm finding it tough doing the old stuff. Like loving you the way he loves you. Like being salt that's tasty, that causes preservation, causes tastiness, causes life to be beneficial, and causes people to be thirsty. I get those things down. I'll move on to maybe something new. I suspect, short of, his coming again. There will at least be one area, most of them, all the areas, I will fall short. But I don't get depressed by being falling short. Because I know that the Word of God says, for we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. He did a pretty good job, and every time He said, let there be light, or let there be animals, or let there be plants, or let there be man, and let there be woman, He says, it is good. Can you imagine what He will do when He's completed his workmanship in us, and we're like Jesus, I suspect the work will be very good. So between now and then, let us consider how to be salt and light in this world. And if you're not, today is an excellent day to become. And if you've kind of lost your saltiness, God's still in the miracle-making business. You may not be able to make yourself salty again, but he can, so that you might be usable. And all God's people said,